0: Open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 988. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're continuing our very extended reflection on verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's pray for help. Almighty God, you have inspired all Scripture for our learning, transformation, growth, and godliness. So please now, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. Several years ago, some missionaries came to visit us while on furlough. Uh, these were wonderful missionaries who had been doing faithful gospel ministry in Eastern Europe, and they were back in the States to visit their supporting churches and supporting pastors. Well, these missionaries came to visit us, and it is uh, very common. They brought with them some gifts from the country that they were serving in. Uh, over the years, I've actually accumulated a small collection of interesting items from various countries, various cultures. Uh, it's one of the perks of being a pastor, I didn't anticipate. Well, these missionaries gave me a handful of gifts uh, that were apparently well known, much loved in their country, and among these gifts were these little uh, objects. I call them objects because to this day I have no idea what they were. Uh, I don't know if they were Christmas tree ornaments, if they were jewelry, if they were something that you used to adorn your home, if they were some sort of magical charms, I have no idea what they were. Uh, They certainly looked beautiful, and I appreciate their generosity, but uh, to this day, even though they're kicking around my house, I wish I could have found them and brought them in. Uh, I have no idea what they are or what they're for. Now, I don't remember exactly why, but when these missionaries were here giving me these gifts, I didn't ask them what they were. I don't know if I was too distracted, uh, too embarrassed, if I didn't want to seem unappreciative or what, but I never got around to asking them what they were for, and as a result, again, I have no idea what they even are. Now I'm afraid that many Christians have that sort of relationship with the Holy Spirit. They know that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God, and they're certainly grateful for God's generosity. But beyond that, they're not quite sure what the Holy Spirit is or what the Holy Spirit does. And for one reason or another, they never get around to asking, to exploring, uh, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? I'd encourage you to think about this for yourself. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit does dwell in your soul. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But really, what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? Why is he there? How do you engage with the Holy Spirit? How do you take advantage of his resources? How do you employ his power? I mean, you could think about it this way. Let's say a child were to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit doing today? How would you answer that question? Well, enabling you to answer that question is the entire point of this series. I want you to have a full, rich, personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. I want you to be able to take advantage of the resources and the power that is there in the Holy Spirit. And I want you to do that because that can totally transform your life, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, for the sake of time, I won't review where we've been thus far in this series. You can check online to see what topics we've covered. Uh, Suffice it to say, this is the sixth sermon in this series, and I appreciate that many of you have told me that you found this series very helpful, very practical. I love hearing that. Uh, That's exactly what I was hoping for. But today we're going to be talking about one more vital ministry of the Spirit, a ministry that He's hopefully performing right now as I preach the ministry of illumination. What is the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination? Why do we need this ministry? How can we most take advantage of it? That, by God's grace, is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Well, let's talk first about what is the Spirit's work of illumination? What is this ministry? We should probably begin by defining the word illumination. It's kind of a big word that we don't usually use in ordinary conversation. So what does the word illumination mean? Well, the word illumination, it basically means to brighten up something that's hidden in darkness. Brighten up something that's hidden in darkness. Now, we use this word in both a literal way and a figurative way. Literally, you know, let's say I go into my garage at night and the lights are off and I start bumping into stuff, tripping over stuff. If I turn the lights on, I've illuminated my garage. Okay, That's the literal use of this term. The figurative use is when we talk about understanding a concept. You know, Let's say uh, I'm just terrible at algebra, I can't understand it. My mom gets me a tutor, she explains algebra to me, and all of a sudden the lights start coming on. She's illuminated algebra. Uh, sometimes you see in comics uh, this light bulb over somebody's head when they've thought a good idea. That, again, is the entire idea of illumination. Uh, there's a literal illumination, a figurative illumination, but they're both the idea of turning the lights on. Now, when we come to the Holy Spirit, most evangelical Christians believe the Holy Spirit performs a ministry of illumination in the life of believers. And as I'm I'm going to try and show you, this is a ministry that's actually taught throughout Scripture. Uh, This is not one of those new ministries that the Spirit does after Pentecost. This is actually found throughout the entirety of the Bible. Now, in thinking about the Spirit's ministry of illumination, it is interesting that this is one of those ministries where you can't find a single verse that says the Holy Spirit illuminates. But in reality, a lot of biblical concepts are like that. The word Trinity is never found in the Bible. Uh, The word incarnation is never found in the Bible, though obviously John 1 talks about the word taking on flesh. There are a lot of concepts that are there, even though the precise wording isn't there. And so also, as I'm going to try and prove, the idea of the Holy Spirit illuminating us, giving us greater understanding of his word, is really found throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of definitions from resources about what this ministry is. What is the Holy Spirit doing when he illuminates us? Well, first, the Baker Dictionary of Theology says this, Generally, the concept of illumination is related to the work of the Holy Spirit making clear the truth of the written revelation. The unregenerate man cannot experience illumination in this sense, for he is blinded to the truth of God. Notice some things about that definition. It's talking about Christians. This is not something for non-Christians. This is talking about believers, and it's very much tied to the written word of God. This is not receiving some new, fresh word from God that's not found in Scripture. No, it's as we ponder the Scriptures, God's Spirit opens our minds, opens our hearts to understand what's there. Here's another definition, and again, see if you see some similarities between these two. Paul Enns writes this, Because the Bible is God-breathed, and therefore in an entirely different dimension from other literature, it is necessary that man receive God-given help in understanding the Bible. The work of illumination then is necessary to enable man to comprehend the Word of God. Illumination can thus be defined as the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby He enlightens those who are in right relationship with Him to comprehend the written Word of God. Do you catch any similarities there between that definition and the first definition? Again, this is for believers. Uh, If you're currently not trusting in Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. But do realize that most of what we're going to be talking about this morning is for Christians, those who are trusting in Jesus. Additionally, this is in conjunction with the written Word of God. This is really not talking about you know, all of a sudden having a vision or something like that. As I'm meditating on Scripture, as I'm studying the Word of God, I I get to a part that I can't fully comprehend, so I pray, Lord, open my eyes, and my eyes are open, and all of a sudden, wow, I get it. That's illumination. Now, does the Bible teach this doctrine? I believe that it does, and it's actually found in many, many passages of Scripture, found throughout the entirety of the Bible. Uh, For the sake of time, we're only going to talk about three. Uh, Originally, when I was plotting this out, I had nine passages to walk through, but I thought that would make for a sermon that was at least two hours long. So for the sake of time, we're not going to talk about all nine passages, just three. But learn from these three what the Bible teaches about this ministry of illumination. The first, if you'd call that one up, is Psalm 119.18. In Psalm 119.18, we read this. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, obviously, this verse is short, but there's actually an awful lot to meditate on here. Uh, And by the way, if you want a lot more verses talking about illumination, read the entirety of Psalm 119. Uh, I think Psalm 119, I mean, that's kind of one of the major themes of the psalm. I need help to understand your word. Uh, I am dark by nature. I am blind by nature. Open my eyes. So maybe sometime this week, read the entirety of Psalm 119 with an eye to this idea of illumination. But thinking here about verse 18, a few things I want you to notice. First, is the author of Psalm 119 a believer or a non believer? Has he put his hope in Lord Jehovah or not? Clearly, he is a believer. I mean, if you remember from our sermons in Psalm 119, and I admit that we haven't had one in a while. I, I know that there was this idea that I was going to you know, preach once a, s- a quarter from Psalm 119, but that was many moons ago, and I kind of forgot about it. I hope to get back eventually and finish the entire thing. But if you remember our sermons from Psalm 119, he's clearly a believer. He talks about delighting in the law of the Lord. He's hiding God's law in his heart. He does not want to sin against the Lord. He wants to walk in the way of God's commands. Clearly, this is a guy who has been born again by God's Spirit and knows the Lord. Additionally, look at what he's asking for in this verse. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, is he talking there about literal illumination or figurative illumination? Is he asking, you know, I'm I'm physically, literally blind and I want to see again? Or is he talking about a spiritual work in his heart? He's talking about. We have no reason to think that the author of Psalm 119, whoever he was, was physically blind, literally blind. He's praying, Lord, I'm looking at Your Word, but I don't fully get it. I don't fully comprehend what it's saying. So open the eyes of my heart that I might comprehend its meaning. The last thing I want you to consider here is again how it relates to the written word. Is he asking for some new, fresh revelation, some something that's not already in Scripture, or is he asking for help in understanding the written Scripture? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Clearly, he's got the Bible right in front of him. He's struggling. Lord, I, I, I can't get this. I don't really understand what's going on here. Open my eyes, open my heart that I might see with spiritual eyes the significance of this passage. That's what he's praying for, and that's really what we mean when we talk about spiritual illumination, Holy Spirit illumination. Let me give you a second passage that I think teaches this doctrine Ephesians 1 16 through 19. A little bit longer. We'll just make a couple of comments on it. In Ephesians 1, 16 through 19, notice what Paul prays. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, quickly, a few things to notice. First, are the Ephesians believers or unbelievers? Are they Christians or non-Christians? Clearly, they are Christians, they are believers. I mean, if you go back in the context, uh, these individuals, he calls them saints, he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus, they were chosen from before the foundation of the world, they've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. So there's really no debate that this prayer is for those who already know God through Jesus. Well, if that's the case, what then is Paul praying for? Well, look at it, he says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, believe. Now, this is what I want you to think through. Did they already know the truths of the gospel? Yes. Did they already know something about the hope to which God has called them? Yes. Did they already know a little bit about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Absolutely. But did they fully comprehend and fully understand all of that? No. So what is he praying for? A greater illumination, a greater understanding of these truths so that they're filled with wonder, love, and praise. Again, that's what we mean when we talk about the Spirit's ministry of illumination. You could probably think about it this way. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard about the difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Uh, It's often illustrated this way. You can know facts about the president, but not know the president. You know, you can know the president's birthday and his political party and some of his accomplishments, but that's different from actually knowing the president as a child or as a friend. Have you heard this illustration before? Something similar can go on with the Bible. You can know all sorts of facts and details about the Bible. I mean, you can know about the Gergeshites and the Hittites and the Hivites and, you know, all these little data points but not to know it in a heart-transforming, convicting, mind-renewing way. And what we're praying for when we pray for the Spirit's illumination is not just to learn details about the Philistines, but to engage with Scripture in such a way that we're transformed, that we're moved, that we're moved to repentance and transformation and fruit. Follow me? Let me give you one final passage that I think teaches illumination. Colossians 1, 9, and 10. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul again prays this. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, many similarities between this passage and the Ephesians one. Again, they're both prayers for believers, which means they already know the basics of the gospel. They already know the basics of the Bible. But he's praying for greater understanding, a greater awareness of the will of God. Now, where is the will of God found? The will of God is found primarily in Scripture. Uh, the, obviously, the Bible talks a lot about the will of God. We pray according to the will of God. we walk according to the word of God, uh, the will of God, pardon me, but most of that is found in the Bible. What he's praying for then is a deeper understanding and appreciation of the truths that are found in Scripture. Again, move me in my heart, my affections, that I love these truths, that I want to obey them. Not that I just know them in some academic fashion, but they become the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Are you following me? And notice in this passage, if they experience this, if God answers Paul's prayer, what will happen? What will be the outcome? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, those are some pretty good outcomes. If God will illuminate them in this way, they'll be filled with God's spirit. Their lives will be increasingly pleasing to God. If you're a believer, you want that, don't you? I mean, I want my life to be increasingly filled with the fruit of the spirit. Realize it's connected to God's spirit doing this ministry of illumination. Now, Based on just these three passages, and again, there are more that I could share. If you you want more, ask me at the door. But based on these three passages, what does the Bible teach about this ministry of the Spirit's illumination? Well, tell me if you think that this is an accurate little summary. The Spirit has this vital ministry of opening the eyes of our hearts, opening the eyes of our souls to grasp the meaning, the significance, the spiritual power of a passage of Scripture. Uh, It's not apart from the Bible, as if I'm just walking around the woods and just get illuminated. No, it's as I'm meditating on, studying, reading the Bible, the Spirit opens my eyes to stand in awe of the truths that are there. And if that happens, my life is increasingly filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Is that a reasonable summary of what we've seen? Now let me make a few quick clarifications before we proceed here. First, you might object. None of those passages that you just read mention anything about the Holy Spirit. I mean, they all talk about illumination and open the eyes of the heart whatnot, but the Spirit's not in any of those. So what's up with that? Well, my response would be, you're right, the Spirit was not explicitly, explicitly mentioned in any of those passages, but we do know from other passages of Scripture that it's the Spirit who's at work in our hearts. I mean, especially as post-Pentecost believers, we're indwelt by the Spirit. He's the one that convicts us, renews us, transforms us, bears fruit. So it's not a long jump from there to say that it's the Spirit who's illuminating our minds. You follow that? Here's another clarification. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here to mean that non Christians can't know anything about the Bible. That's not what we're meaning. Non Christians can know an awful lot of biblical data. Uh, You know, if you ever go study in Bible college or seminary, they might give you books by non Christians, and sometimes these books are helpful. Say on archaeology, or, you know, for example, my Hebrew textbook I think was written by a non Christian. There are some actually really good biblical studies books by unbelieving Jews. So we're not saying that they can't know anything, but what we are saying is that they can't know with the spiritual depth, the spiritual power that only the Spirit reveals. Again, it's kind of going back to knowing facts about the president compared to knowing the president personally. They can know all sorts of details about the Philistines and about you know, what David's palace looked like. And, and again, that can be helpful. But for the deep, spiritually transformative knowledge of Scripture, that is impossible apart from the indwelling Spirit. Uh, let's see here. Let me make a couple of other quick clarifications. I've already made this point, but do realize illumination is different from giving new revelation. Okay, Illumination is not giving new revelation. Giving new re- revelation is writing new books of the Bible like Paul putting pen to paper, writing a book to the Ephesians. That's not what this is. This is bringing to light, turning the lights on the already completed Bible. As I get the Bible open, as I put my nose in the book, God turns the lights on. So you see the difference? Additionally, this ministry of illumination is not identical to regeneration. We talked about regeneration a couple of weeks ago. That's where unbelievers are born again. They were in absolute darkness, but God turns the lights on, and they see Jesus and trust in him. There's this point in time. I go from darkness to light. This is similar but different than that. Maybe the best illustration that I could think of is a dimmer switch uh, on your wall at home. Anybody Raise your hand if you've got a dimmer switch somewhere in your house, So probably in your kitchen. See if this makes sense. With a dimmer switch, there's an initial click where you turn it on. Okay, It's off, click, turns it on, right? That initial click where it turns on, that would be comparable to regeneration. I was in darkness, click, all of a sudden I'm in light. I, I used to see Jesus as just a boring, irrelevant religious teacher, click. Now I see him as the Lord and Savior of my life. That's regeneration and I hope and pray you've all experienced that. But if you've got a dimmer switch, there's still a long way to go once that click on has taken place. You know, if you, if you've got the light, you know, for example, in my kitchen, I mean, you could really crank it up a lot. That additional cranking up is the work of illumination. The lights are on, I see Jesus is glorious, but there's still a long way to go. There's so much I need to understand about who Jesus is, about my own soul, about the plan of God. There's a long way to go, and that gradual turning up of the light is the Spirit's ministry of illumination. Does that make sense? Well, that is the Spirit's work of illumination. Hopefully now you have a better understanding of this ministry and why it's so important to get the Bible. Let's talk about our second question why is illumination necessary for the born-again Christian? A lot of people, after hearing what I just said, they ask the question, you know, why is this necessary? If I'm indwelt by God's Spirit, if I've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, if I'm a child of God, if I've got the sure and certain hope of heaven, why is this even necessary? Well, the simple answer to that question is something called the flesh. The flesh, F-L-E-S-H, flesh. Flesh. All born-again Christians, all spirit-dwelt Christians, all heaven-bound Christians are still partially in the flesh and will have this flesh with us until we see Jesus. This flesh is always opposed to the truth of God's word. It's like Galatians 5 says, listen to this, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things that you want. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, because of this flesh, this part of our person, we can sympathize with the Apostle Paul, who said in Romans seven fifteen, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do pardon me, that I do not want, is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I can remember vividly the first time I read that passage. I was probably 16, and as a 16-year-old, I struggled with most of the sins that 16-year-old Americans struggle with. And I can still see it. I was in my basement. My bedroom was in the basement at the time, and I was probably 10 o'clock at night reading my little Bible. I had this little paperback NIV, and I was reading through this section, and I remember just getting hit right between the eyes like a sledgehammer with this. I'm like, Paul's got me figured out. This is exactly how I feel. The good that I want to do, I don't do. Instead, the evil that I hate is what I keep on doing. And I remember thinking, I'm like, how, how on earth could Paul describe my experience so vividly and so accurately? What I didn't realize then was that what Paul was describing was simply the war that all Christians experience between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, this is something that all of us who know Jesus will struggle with every day until we get to heaven. Now, what this means, talking about the flesh in practice, is that even the godliest Christians have elements of their person uh, that are opposed to a right understanding of the Bible. I don't think the flesh only leads me into sin. It does that. It also darkens my understanding so that I don't properly understand the Scriptures. The flesh will always tempt us to be attracted to false teaching to justify the sins we want to commit. It'll always tempt us to twist Scripture out of context to justify the stuff we want to do in the first place. The flesh will always move us to be attracted to really kooky, crazy things uh, so that we can then go our own way. I mean, I've experienced this in ministry. Uh, Guys that were otherwise upstanding, objective, you know, they carefully read the Bible, carefully read it every day, all of a sudden they want a divorce, and they start twisting the Bible in the strangest ways to justify their divorce, and you're like, what on earth just happened to you? They're letting their flesh cloud their understanding of the reading of the Bible. And, and you and I can do that as well you should imagine your flesh this way imagine you live with this absolutely crazy anti-god anti-jesus anti-bible roommate who's continually feeding you lies about god and about holiness and about about everything that's what it's like some of you have been there in real life but do you know what i'm talking about you've got this just absolutely heretic lecherous roommate telling you lies that's what the flesh does and because of that we need the spirit to progressively put that evil roommate to death and help us to read the bible accurately Now, I I know I've kind of already alluded to this, but let me make this point again, just so there's no misunderstanding. The Spirit's illumination is always in conjunction with and not apart from meditation on written Scripture. Okay? It's as you're thinking God's thoughts that the Spirit turns the lights on. Your meditation, and hopefully you've got time regularly in the Bible. If you don't, you're sort of avoiding this ministry on purpose. But hopefully you've got regular time in Scripture. As you're meditating on Scripture, you're praying, Lord, open my eyes. Uh, Lord, help me to understand. Lord, convict me. Lord, lead me to repentance. As you're meditating, the Spirit turns the lights on. I want you to think about what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.7. I find this verse utterly fascinating. Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, just quickly, by the way, I think this verse assumes that Paul thinks his writings are Scripture. I mean, I can't promise you that the Lord will illuminate my writings if you meditate on them. You know, if I write some story or something like that, I have no reason to promise God will help you understand this. But I think Paul can promise that the Lord will help people understand his writings because he understands that his writings are the Word of God. Follow that? But the other thing I want you to consider here is how it's not Bible meditation or illumination. Bible study. It's Bible meditation and illumination. As I'm thinking on what he says, then the Spirit illuminates my mind. You see? Again, we want to avoid this idea that we're just walking around a field, not thinking about the Bible at all, and all of a sudden, boom, God turns the lights on. Can God do that? Of course, but that's not what we should expect when we're talking about the Spirit's illumination. It's as I'm sitting there pondering, meditating, maybe in a sermon, maybe in a Bible study, maybe in uh, private devotions, but as I'm pondering, Lord, open my eyes and the lights come on. Now, if this is what the Spirit's ministry of illumination is, it protects us from two very dangerous errors. There are two errors that I see very, very common in the church, but a proper understanding of illumination will protect us from both of these. What are these, you ask? The first is Bible-less mysticism. These are going to be big words, but let me explain them. The first error, call that slide up if you would, Bible-less mysticism. What is Bible less mysticism? Well, you can probably figure it out. Basically, trying to engage with God without the Bible or going around the Bible. Um, You know, the the Bible's nice and all, and and maybe, you know, some people are into it, but I don't need that. I'm just going to engage with God directly without the Bible. My great fear is that millions within Christendom have fallen for this idea. Maybe a lot of people put stocks in dreams and visions they've had. Maybe they consider unsolicited advice from friends as God's word to them. Uh, you've probably heard the old story of the young man who's really attracted to a young girl, and he tells her, it's God's will for us to marry, when all, all he's doing is just, you know, attracted to her. There's no God's will there at all. Folks who advocate this, they might read into curious coincidences. Uh, they might really see some dramatic encounter with somebody at a gas station as God speaking to them, uh, some strange Facebook post that really speaks to their heart. Uh, all of these and more are attempts to engage with God by going around Scripture. If you want to think of a version of this that's common in our circles, don't raise your hand, but have you ever flipped open the Bible and just put down your finger and thought that's God's word to you? I confess I've done that. Not, not recently, by the grace of God, uh, but earlier in life, not really knowing any better. Now, is that the unpardonable sin? No. No. Uh, you know, Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. But is that the proper way to be illuminated by Scripture or by by the Spirit as we ponder Scripture? It's not. Holy Spirit illumination takes place as we carefully, properly meditate on Scripture. And simply flipping to a passage and putting down my finger, it's really more like reading your horoscope or or trying to, you know, discern the entrails of a pig uh, than properly engaging with God through his word. I think what happens with Bible-less mysticism is that we make our subjective impressions our authority. Instead of the Bible, our impressions, what we want. And really, at the end of the day, it's the desires of our flesh become the authority. And if you get into this, realize it becomes remarkably easy to justify what you want to do. You know, I got this thing I really, really want to do. Oh, I guess God wants me to uh, you know, leave my first wife, who's maybe old, and marry this younger model that I found on Facebook. Beware of bible mysticism. I've seen it, it's nasty, and it's dangerous. God's Spirit illuminates as we meditate on Scripture. Let me give you a second error that the Spirit's work of illumination protects us from, and that's spiritless scholasticism. Spiritless scholasticism. Again, big word, but if I explain it, I think you'll understand what I'm getting at. With spiritless scholasticism, people engage with the Bible as if it's nothing more than this ancient textbook of religious data and information. Uh, they look at it as if it's got no authority, no power in their lives today. Uh, they read it basically the way that people read Shakespeare in high school. Now, you remember reading Shakespeare? I remember reading Shakespeare. I thought it was... Beautiful words, that didn't mean anything. Uh, Sometimes people read the Bible that way, just interesting stories about the Hittites and the the Jebusites, without any examination of their life, no humility, no repentance, no faith. Now again, a variation on this approach that's common among conservative Christians is when people study the Bible only to learn end times minutiae. Uh, you know, being obsessed with who the Antichrist is, or what Gog and Magog are, or, you know, is Russia going to invade Israel? Or even interpreting current events, you know, what's going on today in the news, being obsessed with interpreting that through Scripture. Now, does the Bible have a lot to say about prophecy and the end of the world? Of course, but it's got an awful lot more than that. And if all you're ever doing is treating the Bible as sort of this handbook of end times details, it's highly likely that you've fallen into this spiritless scholasticism. Now, with spiritless scholasticism, what we're doing is we're making our fallen reason the authority. With the first one, Bibleist mysticism, the desires of our flesh became the authority. This one, our reason becomes the authority. It's actually identical to the way that the Pharisees read the Bible, and I think we all know what they did to Jesus when he showed up. And ultimately, by avoiding engagement with the Holy Spirit, without carefully meditating on his word, the Spirit's work of illumination is hijacked. So, to avoid both of these errors, to avoid both Bibleless mysticism and spiritless scholasticism, keep the written word and spirit's illumination combined. Keep them together. Don't divorce what God has brought together. Like old Martin Luther wrote, he said in this psalm, he was talking about Psalm 119, David always says that he will speak, think, talk, hear, read, day and night, constantly, but about nothing else than God's word and commandments. And meditate on Psalm 119 to put that to the test. I think you'll find that he's telling the truth. For God wants to give you his Spirit only through the external Word. That's a bit about why spirits, the Spirit's illumination is necessary for the born again Christian. Let's close up with making this practical. How can I increase the likelihood of experiencing Holy Spirit illumination? Let me give you five practical recommendations for experiencing the Spirit's work of illumination. These are going to be quick and brief. But if you'd like to enjoy the Spirit's work of illumination as you meditate on Scripture, five practical recommendations. First, repent of all known sin. Repent of all known sin. Did you know the Bible connects our unwillingness to repent with a diminished ability to engage with God? And I mean it kind of makes sense. If I'm if I've sinned against my wife, I'm, we're not gonna have a healthy relationship until I repent and seek her forgiveness. So also, if you've got some sin that you're treasuring in your heart, don't expect God to properly open your mind, properly open your heart, like he would if you were repenting of your sins. Listen to 1 Peter 2.1. Peter says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Do You see the order there? Put away all these sins and then feed on the word of God. But if you're not going to put away the sins, don't expect to be properly fed by the word. You're probably familiar with Psalm 66:18. 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And I don't think that's listened in only illumination. I think it includes illumination. I think it's talking about prayer in general. But if I'm treasuring some sin in my heart, God's not going to answer my prayer, Lord, open my eyes to understand your word. I think this is just a variation on James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The reason why you might not hunger for God's word like you should is because you're treasuring some sin in your heart. Examine yourself. Are there ways whereby you need to repent? Maybe it's the reason why you have no interest in the Bible, no hunger and thirst for righteousness, because there is this cherished idol that you will not cast down. Practically what this means is that before any time in God's Word, spend a little time inspecting yourself. Maybe Don't go overboard. Sometimes people go absolutely nuts here. Uh, you've heard about Luther's stories of spending eight hours in the confessional. That's not what we're talking about. But before any time, b- before a Sunday school lesson, spend what a minute, two minutes examining your life. Are there sins they need to repent from? Are there believers, other brothers and sisters that I need to be reconciled to? Uh, Do that before any time in God's word, so as to increase the likelihood of experiencing Spirit's illumination. Quickly, a second suggestion. Pray for the Spirit's illumination before, during, and after any time in God's word. Pray for the Spirit's illumination before, during, and after any time in God's word. Like I said, we do not want here a purely academic understanding of Scripture. If you want that, you can go listen to some of the great courses or something like that, but just realize if you do that, it's not going to change your life. We want God's Spirit opening our hearts, opening our minds, confronting us, transforming us so that we're nude and made like Jesus. So whenever you study the Word of God, maybe pray some of these prayers from Psalm 119. Again, Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'd encourage you to do this like in the middle of your Bible reading. Say you're reading the Bible and you're like, this isn't making any sense at all. Maybe just right there, pause and pray. Make me understand your precepts. That's Psalm 119.27. Afterwards, pray, Lord, help me. Lord, help me to put these principles into practice, to be a doer of your word, not a hearer only. Pray before, during, and after. And also, pray for your pastor and Bible study, te- Bible study leaders while they're teaching. Uh, We haven't sung it here in a while, but one of the verses of that Holy Manna song implies that you're praying while the word is being preached, and that's something that you can do right now. I mean, especially if you're finding the sermon maybe a little bit dull and you find your mind wandering, maybe part of the way you kick in is by praying, Lord, please help our preacher. I can tell he's struggling. I can tell he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Uh, Lord, please open hearts, open minds. You know, Pray that while the teaching and the preaching is going on. Quickly, a third suggestion. Read and or listen carefully to the Bible and reflect. Read and or listen carefully to the Bible and reflect. Now, the point I was trying to make earlier is that the Spirit's work of illumination takes place through a proper interpretation of Scripture. It's not verses twisted out of context. It's not me importing meanings into this passage that aren't there. It's not me taking promises that aren't made to me and applying them to me. No, it's as the Bible is properly read and understood, that's how the Spirit illuminates. So I do my part to Properly carefully read, the Spirit does His part to open my eyes. So basically, put into practice those principles of reading comprehension that you hopefully learned in elementary school. Uh, read verses in context, maybe backing up a couple verses, maybe reading forward a couple verses to make sure you're interpreting it properly. Strive to understand the author's meaning to the original audience at first and then think about how it applies to us today. You use normal principles of grammar, reread something you don't get. Uh, Don't build a huge doctrine off some obscure verse that people struggle to understand what it's talking about? I'm reminded here of something I heard many years ago. You'll often hear non-Christians make the claim, you Christians can defend anything from the Bible. You Christians can use the Bible to defend anything. Racism, bigotry, genocide, polygamy. You can use the Bible to defend anything. Is that true or not? It's actually true if you're willing to use the Bible out of context. If you're willing to wrench verses out of context, you can use it to prove almost anything. But if you read it carefully in context, that's where God is the authority. So read and carefully listen to the Bible and reflect. Read it in context. Read it with proper under- principles of Bible interpretation. Otherwise, I don't think we have reason to believe the Spirit's going to illuminate us. Quickly, a fourth suggestion. Repent again. Repent again. What do I mean by this? Well, as you're reading, it's highly likely that the Spirit's going to point out something new that you hadn't considered before. And it very likely might be a sin that you've been committing for quite some time. I'm reminded of the story with Josiah when they discovered the scroll that had been hidden away in the temple for years. They brought it out. They read it. Josiah starts weeping because he's realizing, oh my goodness, we've been sinning in all these ways and we're not even aware of it. Remember, he rips his clothes and whatnot. Something analogous can happen as we spend time in God's word, reading it, listening to sermons. The spirit opens our eyes to convict us and say, you know, you're sinning in this area. You need to repent. You've been tolerating this for an awful long time. You need to repent. And what you need to to realize is that at that very moment, that's God's Spirit dealing with you. It's like mano y mano, man to man. When the Spirit's convicting you, that's God speaking directly to you. You might be thinking, you know, reading the Bible this way, it's going to take too much time. If I paused and repented every time I was convicted, uh, I might not get through my four chapters a day. Now, What do you think I'm going to say to that? Well, it's much better to read, say, one paragraph in this prayerful, repenting, reflective manner than to read 20 chapters in kind of a superficial academic way. And honestly, if you're more concerned about completing your arbitrarily chosen number of chapters and not really engaging with God and repenting when he convicts you of sin, uh, you're gravely in danger of grieving the Holy Spirit. And if you continue along those lines, you might quench the Holy Spirit. So repent whenever you're convicted of sin, even if that means I only get through one verse today. Much better to do that. Here's a final suggestion. Repeat these recommendations over and over and over throughout your Christian life, for the Spirit's illumination is progressive and incremental. Repeat these recommendations over and over and over again throughout your Christian life, for the Spirit's illumination is progressive and incremental. This really should be rather self-explanatory. But you're going to need the Spirit's illumination until you see Jesus. I mean, there are doctrines that you don't understand now that you might understand 5, 10 years from now. Uh, there are sins that you might be tolerating now that God's Spirit's going to bring to light 10 years, 20 years from now. But in order for that to happen, you need to be walking in the Spirit today. Those are just five suggestions for making the most of the Spirit's work of illumination. If you do those, if you put those into practice, I believe you have every reason to expect God to open your eyes that you might understand wonderful things out of his law. At a our time this morning, I want to again address those who might be here today and who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus. You've not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus. You've not yet been born again by God's Spirit. If that's you, again, we're delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. We've talked a lot about light this morning, illumination. The question I want you to think about is, do you feel lost in darkness? Obviously not literally. God, by, God, by his grace, has given us most of us eyes to see, uh, literally. But spiritually speaking, you feel lost, aimless. And you look around at the crazy world and you're like, what in the world is going on? You think about your own soul. Why am I here? What's my meaning, my purpose? Do you feel lost in darkness? Be honest. If so, listen to what Jesus said in John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you're feeling dark, if you're feeling blind, if you're feeling lost, realize Jesus is offering to be your light. Light in this life and light in the life to come, if you'll but turn and trust in him. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God. You were made to know God to have a relationship with him, to find your significance, your meaning, your purpose out of your relationship with him. But the Bible goes on to say that we've rejected God. We've rebelled against him. God wants to be a loving heavenly father. We basically tell God, get lost. We don't want you running our lives. Now, because God is a righteous God, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath on us for our sins, somewhat in this life, but far worse in the life to come. And unless our sins are forgiven, unless we're reconciled to our Heavenly Father, we will be sentenced to the eternal fire forever. But under those very circumstances, God, in His great love, He did something to reconcile us to Himself. He gave us a Savior, a Savior available to all who will call upon His name. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary and given the name Jesus. He's fully God, fully man in one person. That little baby, he grew up, became a toddler, became a young boy, became an adolescent, became a teenager, became an adult man, did some teaching, performed many miracles, confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees, taught an awful lot about the Holy Spirit, but then he died on the cross, and he died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. Big term, what's that mean? He bears the judgment our sins deserve in our place. I love this idea. He he takes the punishment, really the hell I deserve for all of my rebellion. He absorbs that in my place on the cross. God's wrath is spent on him so that now the Father can turn to me and say, you're forgiven, you're reconciled to me. And that's offered to all of you who will embrace the Lord Jesus with faith today. If you'll turn from sin, stop marching to the tune of your own drummer. If you'll embrace the Lord Jesus, rely on his death and resurrection, you will be reconciled to God, you'll enter into a right relationship with your creator, and he'll give you his Holy Spirit who will lead you and illuminate your mind. So in conclusion, I beg you to come to Jesus now. Come to him now. Right where you are, stop running from God. Right where you are, stop living your own way. Come back to God. Rely on Jesus. Embrace his cross. Embrace his empty tomb. And be made right right with God right now. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust the Lord Jesus today as your Savior. And today begin following the light of life. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you are a God of light. In you is light and the life of all of us. Your son Jesus is the light of the world. And those of us who follow him will never walk in darkness. We thank you for that. Lord, we do pray for any within the hearing of my voice who have not yet put their hope in the Lord Jesus. Move in their hearts by your spirit that right now they would turn and trust in him. Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray that your spirit would increasingly illuminate our minds, increasingly open our eyes, our hearts, to behold wondrous things out of your word. And as that takes place, we pray that you would bear much fruit in our lives. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.